You're listening to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. It seems we're entering into a new era of global order. A look back at the last 10 years would suggest the end of an era of international convergence between major political powers. What we see today is increasing divergence between countries such as China, Russia, the European Union, and the United States. It's as though we've returned to the old style of geopolitical competition and balancing behavior between the United States and the West on the one side and illiberal authoritarian states on the other. So how will international politics evolve in this new setting and what will define it? Will it be cooperation based on mutual interests and concerns? Or will it be defined by geopolitical competition between major powers trying to gain strategic advantages over their rivals? In this episode, my colleague Torsten Benner speaks with Thomas Wright, who reflects on the past and discusses how he sees the futures of the global order and international politics. Tom talks about the implications of global political and economic interdependence and geopolitical competition and talks about the relationship between the United States, Russia, China and Europe. Tom Wright is director of the Center of the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy at Brookings Institution. Previously, he was executive director of studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a lecturer at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and a senior researcher for the Princeton Project on National Security. Here is Tom Wright with Torsten Benner. Welcome, Tom, on our Global Futures uh, podcast. Uh, Last year, you published a book, All Measures Short of War, that deals with the contest for the 21st century and the future of uh, American power. And uh, that book speaks to a lot of the issues uh, that are at the heart of the Global Governance Futures program. And it also debunks some of the assumptions many who advocated global governance uh, in the 90s and 2000s had. You talk about uh, the convergence myth uh, that has exploded in in our face. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more what you mean by this convergence myth? Well, thanks, Torsten. It's great to be with you uh, today. Yeah, in the book, I sort of talk about the assumptions behind Western strategy in the 90s and 2000s, which I call sort of convergence. Uh, convergence is a little bit different than the end of history. It's not that um, China and Russia and all authoritarian countries will become democratic, but it does uh, sort of suggest that they will become responsible stakeholders in the liberal international order. So that as countries globalize and trade with each other, and that they'll essentially work on the same set of challenges, that what unites them will become much more important than what divides them, that the you know world politics will be defined by climate change, counterterrorism, nuclear proliferation, and that old-style geopolitical differences will recede into the background. And I think the big story of the last 10 years is the end of this era of convergence and the beginning of significant divergence whereby we see the return and the intensification of geopolitical competition, what political scientists call balancing behavior against the U.S. and against the West. And and we're now, I think, in the early stages of a new period of geopolitical competition, albeit in a globalized and interdependent world. And what did Western policymakers who were doing their policy on the assumptions that there would be this uh, convergence get ro- uh, get wrong? W- was it indeed that geopolitical competition didn't go away or was there a period where you could you know credibly assume that yeah. we were headed for this convergence so where did we get it wrong well i, I think the reasons behind the convergence were one um that 
the U.S. and the West was very far ahead of Russia and China, so they didn't really see a point in balancing. But it never went away. As you said, the geopolitical competition didn't go away. It was just that they were in a weaker position. So as they got stronger, they were able to push back. I think, secondly, they did believe for a while that the liberal international order could serve their interests. And thirdly, I think they they believed for a while that the common challenges were more significant than old-style geopolitical differences. But I think what happened was that they, the Chinese and the Russians, made a calculation in the 2000s um, which I don't think was incorrect from their point of view, which was that um, the success of the liberal international order globally would threaten authoritarianism in their own countries. And uh, the the example I think that illustrates this is in China in 2012, you know, the New York Times did this story on Chinese wealth and found that family members of the Politburo are exceptionally wealthy due to corruption. That was a very destabilizing story for the CCP. That was not a decision taken in Washington or Berlin or Paris or London. It was just the nature of the free press doing its thing. And I think that they correctly, from their perspective, understand that, you know, the success of liberalism globally will ultimately endanger them. And so they decided to push back in many different ways against that to try to weaken that liberal international order to make the world safe for authoritarianism. And that's sort of what we're seeing. I think it's effectively impossible to buy them off or to accommodate them because I think there is this clash of models. So I don't really think it was a massive mistake by Western politicians to try this strategy. I, I think it was a reasonable approach to see if Russia and China could be coaxed into the international order. I just think it hasn't turned out as we would have hoped. And so now is the time for sort of a recalibration. It's not that it was obvious at the time that this was a mistake. Uh, it's more that, you know, things change and now we need to adjust course. So you wouldn't agree with those who say they're the realists like Kennan who w warned against, for example, the expansion of Western institutions encroaching on what Russia regards as its uh, sphere of influence in the 90s already, that those with the benefit of hindsight were wrong and that it was wrong for the West to so aggressively push its institutions forward and also try to you know, aggressively push for its... Uh, political model in big authoritarian countries. Uh, right. I, I don't agree with that. I mean, just one sort of slight clarification point just before I make the uh, respond properly, but I don't see NATO expansion as a main sort of, you know, uh, problem that Russia has with the Western order, because I think if you look at it objectively, Russia faced less of a threat militarily than it has in the past. You know, I mean, Europe has been reducing its military spending, not increasing it, and the U.S. has been withdrawing, not uh, until recently, not uh, doubling down. I do think that they worried a lot about the expansion of liberal market democracy because they, they believe that that could set a precedent. So I think the EU expansion was probably more significant from their point of view. But I still don't think it was a mistake because um, if you hadn't done that, we'd probably see uh, the return of an intensification of geopolitical competition anyway, and the competitive space would be much greater. So Central and Eastern Europe um, will be much less stable. There are problems today, but it'll be much worse off 
Um, uh, you know, so I, I think that it's better, despite all of the problems now, because of those decisions, than it would be if they hadn't been if they hadn't been taken. So your point is basically it was smart for the West to push as far as uh, it got uh, to kind of double down on on this and to, to have a larger sphere that. Uh, is kind of favorable to Western political ideals uh, than otherwise uh, would have been. I probably wouldn't frame it in exactly that way because I think that, you know, this was a expansion by invitation. I mean, I do think that to the extent that countries are able to uh, determine their own destiny and be helped in that and can become market democracies if they so wish, uh, to the extent that we can facilitate that, that probably improves stability, you know, um, Uh, I think that the problem with the Kennan argument is essentially that you are, you know, you're you're essentially selling out, you know, independent sovereign countries and sacrificing them to somebody else because of their uh, how they define their geopolitical interests. And, you know, we've been down that road before. I mean, all of these decisions have downsides, right? They all create problems that we have to deal with. And the choices we made created problems that we're dealing with. If we'd made other choices, we'd have other problems that we'd have to deal with. So really the question is, like, which set of problems do you want, right? Do you want the set of problems that resulted from expansion of Western institutions or the ones that would have resulted from not expanding them? It's a, you know, it's counterfactual, so it's hard to prove. Hard to prove. But now But, we have the, the problems we have yeah. uh, in terms of uh, stemming partly from the expansion of Western institutions. Uh, we're in an era of geopolitical competition. And uh, you said earlier that uh, the West, the US and its allies need to recalibrate uh, their approach. So what does this uh, recalibration entail? Um, well, I think the main, uh, the main sort of recalibration is to recognize, as the National Defense Strategy did um, here in the US, Um, that great power relations and, and strategic competition is a more significant challenge than counterterrorism and the problems that we have faced from weak states and weak actors in the past. And I think there's a fundamental change of mindset that you yourself have written great stuff on in terms of China and China and Europe, but also Russia. These you know, challenges of managing relations with other big powers, it, that's going to be the, you know, the primary challenge for us uh, going forward. Uh, and I think we're only really at the early stages of that. When I wrote that book, I went back and, and uh, a few a month ago and had to write the introduction for the paperback and sort of considered everything that's happened over the last 18 months since I finished the final draft and or or so. And it, it's been extraordinary. You know, the, I think this competition has really accelerated, but it's reminded me that we're only at the early stages of it. And so it's going to evolve in all sorts of ways and directions. It will be shaped by technological innovation. Uh, we've seen political interference on a very large scale from both Russia and China um, that I didn't sort of fully anticipate the scale of in the book. I talk a bit about it, but not maybe as much as I would if I was writing it today. And so I think what we need to do is to take a, a holistic sort of look and at foreign policy, but also at many aspects of our societies and say, how will this be shaped by this competition and how can we engage in that in a responsible way? So as you yourself has written, that has, you know, economic implications in terms of economic engagement with China, political engagement with China. It has implications on technology 
um, you know, it has implications on democracy, how we think about the media, fake news, political information, warfare. I mean, these are things that really people weren't thinking about a couple of years ago that are, are, are going to be a fixture of our lives sort of going forward. So I think that this is, um, it's a really interesting time, but on foreign policy in particular, it merges the domestic uh, situation with the, you know, the front lines. So the front lines are actually very close to home now because it's it's not about great power war, World War Three. It's about all of this competition that operates beneath that threshold. And we're seeing that, you know, play out in all sorts of ways. Um, so I think we need to take a really hard look at, you know, at, at domestic and foreign policy and try to figure out, you know, the implications of this new strategic situation for you know, for how we live. One of the implications that uh, you've dealt with is kind of to rethink interdependence because for a long time, and you've written about this, uh, many assumed that if we're interdependent with China on trade, on on other issues, common sets of problems that we share, that this would be beneficial. Uh, and uh, you've kind of invited us to rethink this concept of interdependence. Can you say a, a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, there's been an interesting debate in academia about interdependence for a while. Um, but I think we're just beginning to sort of, re, you know, to, to experience that in, in the policy world. The traditional view of interdependence has been that it promotes peace and, and cooperation, right? If you work more closely with someone and you've common interests, then, you know, you'll probably, that will have knock-on effects in a positive way. But of course, interdependence also makes you vulnerable. If you're disconnected from somebody, then you don't have much, that much leverage over them and, and you can both you know, live your lives sort of independently and, and free from thinking about each other. Um, but if you're heavily connected, anything you do can affect the other uh, quite a lot. And, and what's happened today is that we have been integrating as a world, uh, you know, as an international community for 25 years in an unprecedented way. And we've done so under conditions under which we're largely cooperating. And now we find that many of us are rivals and we sort of wake up and we're connected. And um, countries will be tempted to use those connections for strategic advantage. And so the U.S. The has United been doing States, that uh, right. very much. So it's uh, so doing this now with sanctions. So I was going to say uh, that the actual first uh, country to do this was really the U.S. with, you know, the with the EU and with other allies on the financial side. So, you know, we all love sanctions because it's a it's a measure short of war that seems to entail less risk and can be used to punish for egregious activity without using military force. But that's a way of exploiting Uh, another country's uh, integration into the financial system. The Russians understand this and are responding by trying to disengage from that system. Chinese in a slower way, but they're also looking at ways of doing that because they don't want the US and Europe to have a switch that can be turned on or off whenever they do something that we don't like. They have responded on the information side, particularly on cyber, by exploiting these common information systems for their own ends. China has used its economic integration with smaller countries for its own ends. You know, Russia's used energy, uh, you know, in a, in a similar way. So we're seeing all over, you know, th throughout the sort of spectrum of, of, of integration and that countries are using connections to try to, to weaponize them or, you know, turn them into a strategic uh, tool. And, and that means that interdependence is quite volatile. It means that, you know, we're, we're likely, you know, to be more in 
if not conflict in in collision with each other uh, on a whole range of areas um, and so we worry a lot more today about like who owns the power grids who owns critical infrastructure who owns the media you know what companies are you know are buying with social media outlets uh, all sorts of things uh, you know again that, that many, many of which you've written about a lot in the context of European China relations, but also more generally. And and I think that is a huge challenge for us. And we have to think, all countries need to think strategically about interdependence to try to reduce their dependence on potential rivals and figure out how this can actually be stable. You know, how this is, what's a stable equilibrium on interdependence? Um, you know, what's the sort of relationship whereby it, it, you know, it sort of is mutually beneficial. Neither side has an interest in, in, in weaponizing it. You also have an interesting thought in, in the book uh, on potential package deals between geopolitical rivalry issues uh, and issues of common concern like climate change or terrorism and, and so on. And as, if I got you right in the book, you say we shouldn't have these kind of package deals uh, that kind of merge issues where you're competing geopolitically with uh, issues like climate change or you know problems without passports that uh, countries share can you say a little bit more on that yeah i think it's 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 tempting to link things and to say you know we'll we'll take into account climate change and and the south china sea and try to come up with a grand bargain um but i think the problem with that is is that if you do that it, it encourages other countries then to to use that as leverage so to withhold cooperation on climate change unless there's you know a change in policy in the south china sea and um, there's a long history in u.s diplomacy of, of u.s diplomats caring more about global governance than maybe authoritarian countries do and and then authoritarian countries basically exploit that to withhold cooperation on the global governance until there's a change in geopolitics so Uh, one example I think I mentioned in the book is during the World War II when the U.S. was negotiating with the Soviets. You know, the U.S. emphasized the U.N. The Russians didn't really care about the U.N., um, but they withheld cooperation on it until the very end. So when they conceded, uh, they weren't conceding on other issues and they could get something in exchange. And so I think it's important to keep these separate and to you know to compete on those areas of difference independently from the areas of cooperation to try to maintain cooperation for sure but i think the best way to do that is to sort of separate them out and to be clear that um you know that we will co we will compete responsibly on areas of difference and then look to cooperate separately on those on those global governance issues which are in their interests as well. Um, that tends to be a little bit easier with the Chinese, I think, than with the Russians just because, you know, of their, you know, different stakes in the international order. But I, I think it's a, it's a problem of both. In the beginning, you said that uh, we had this illusion of responsible stakeholdership uh, of uh, powers with geopolitical ambitions like uh, Russia and, and China. Now, the problem with the stakeholder, responsible stakeholdership was partly who defines what is responsible. Now, you have this concept of responsible competition. Are you optimistic uh, 
that the major powers uh, share an understanding of what response. I mean, they they know what competition is, but uh, what is responsible is in the eye of the beholder, and it's uh, contested. So, how optimistic are you that there is a common basis for understanding what responsible means in the context? I'm of not conflict? hugely <laughs> optimistic at the moment. I mean, I think that if you look at new strategic eras, just historically often the least stable periods of those eras are at the beginning. You know, when you're trying to figure out where are the red lines, what are the different interests at stake. So the early Cold War, uh, with the exception of the early 80s, was like the most dangerous period of the Cold War because nobody knew. We hadn't devised mutually assured destruction. No one really knew what nuclear strategy was. They didn't know what the spheres of influence actually were. Uh, you, you could look at any other era and, and, and it's a similar thing what people are feeling around the dark at the beginning and i think we're at a similar period now you know so part of this hopefully will be resolved over time but again historically it usually happens by making mistakes and paying costs and then you're like okay we won't do that again you know so after the cuba missile crisis it's more stable but it might have been impossible to get that without the cuba missile crisis right so th that's one element i think of why i'm a little pessimistic the other is um uh, you know the some people analyzing the book have said well you know you might have this strategy responsible competition but how can you be assured that the political debate will sustain that i mean do people want a moderate policy don't they just go one way or another way and and that's a real risk i think and so it's a real challenge of leadership to have a position that competes but not not full throttle you know so i would not like to see a strategy toward china for i i favor a tougher approach to china geopolitically but i would not like to see an approach to china that try to undermine the regime and weaken china to to you know to make its economic collapse more likely and to sort of you know support you know, secessionist movements and do all sorts of things that would really, you know, endanger the, the regime and be seen as an existential threat. I think that would be a step too far. There are people who argue for that. I think that that's what we have to sort of avoid. Um, and we also have to avoid under competing, you know, not, you know, pretending that there isn't a competition. Um, so I think it is a challenge for, for those of us who favored that approach, you know, to, to be able to, you know, make sure it's politically viable. And all we can and, do and, is try, I and think. And this kind of equilibrium approach of responsible competition with regard to China, you mentioned two elements in the book. One is to for the U.S. to work toward denying China an all-too-easy expansion of its sphere of influence in the, in the region, in, in Asia. And second of all, to make what is left of the liberal international order attractive or more attractive than what China is offering with uh, with its institutions and its bilateral partnerships uh, with countries. Now, how does that square with uh, President Trump's uh, approach? You've written a lot on the historical lineages of America first. And how optimistic are you that the U.S. will actually be able to pursue the approach that you recommend? Um, well, I don't, I don't really think the Trump administration is pursuing it. You know, I think that, um, that they've... They've certainly adopted great power competition as an organizing principle in their strategic documents, and I welcome that. I think that's an important step. I think that reflects sort of a large bipartisan view, 
you know, on these issues. Um, but the president, I think, doesn't buy into it. I mean, if you look at what he writes, he has a very different understanding of national security policy. I mean, he sees four threats, I think, currently. Um, he sees immigration as a threat, trade deals, uh, free trade as a threat, North Korea, uh, nukes, and terrorism. Um, and he never talks about great power competition except to say that he doesn't really agree with it, right? So we have these two policies in the administration, and uh, there's evidence for both. You know, on the bureaucratic side, you see a lot of evidence for the national security strategy as the organizing principle, and on on the Trump side, you you know, there's lots of evidence on, on, on for his approach as well, that that's what's driving them. So, um, so I think that's one problem. I think the other problem is that... Um, he, you know, the nature of America first, I think, is fundamentally at odds with a competitive strategy because America's greatest strategic advantage is that in general, not perfectly, not consistently, but in general, other countries believe that their fundamental interests are best served by the success of U U.S. strategy, right? That's historically been, you know, just the what's really underpinned the international order has been the belief that this works for everyone. And that what distinguishes the U.S. as a leading power from other countries is that the U.S. system is relatively speaking more attractive than the other systems that have been tried, right? Than the British Empire or Japanese imperialism, or, you know, German, German imperialism or whatever. And um, if that changes and it's sort of every person for themselves and, you know, the U.S. will exploit its leverage to the maximum on any given issue and treat all these alliances as optional, then what's the difference, you know, from a more traditional sort of hegemonic power? And I think in that scenario, you see countries, you know, peel away and not be there when when the U.S. president sort of asks them to. And that that fundamentally weakens this international order. And it, you know, really, it hastens the advent of a of a series of influence system that's more mercantilist and nationalistic. I mean, the Xi Jinping Putin vision is not a million miles away from Trump's personal vision. You know, like they, you know, it's value free. Uh, much more mercantilist, much more nationalistic, their countries first. So I think it's absolutely vital that the liberal element, and liberal is a tough word because obviously it has a political connotation, but in that classical sense, uh, you know, of, of sort of openness and, and democracy and market economics and everything, it's important that that is part of the strategic vision because that's what makes it have an appeal that transcends narrow national interest. That's what means it appeals to this broader sense of interest that uh, can be a good idea for, you know, most major countries in the world. What's your advice uh, for countries like Germany, other countries in Europe, Uh, that believe in this kind of war, that, that have thrived uh, being allied with the U.S., that are dependent on an open international order econ economically, how should they hedge against uh, maybe uh, America first as an approach for U.S. foreign policy winning out and then them being confronted uh, with that kind of she Trumpian uh, Putin vision and uh, how do smaller open countries uh, survive in that kind of environment I mean I think that the you know my first advice is to be patient I think that you know that the it's important to be patient with the US and to see where this goes you know I I don't think Trump's foreign policy is representative of the country really I know there's a big debate on that I think he went for other reasons I think he's fairly unique 
obviously he taps into certain strands within the country, but I could see uh, a reversal is more likely than a continuance. And, you know, if this if he's reelected, I think maybe it's a different ball game. And I think at that point, countries will begin to seriously hedge and go in different directions. And, and that may be inevitable in that in that scenario. But I think, you know, Secretary Mattis had a, a speech he gave to troops where he said the policy was to hold the line. And I think there's a certain amount of, you know, let's not try to shoot for the moon or to do big initiatives, but to try to preserve as much as possible and then see where things go in the major countries. So I think that that would be the, the first bit of advice. And then the second is, I think, to keep the faith as well. I mean, there's, you know, it's very, the international order is very unpopular at the moment. Obviously, populism is on the rise. Um, but, you know, I don't see another model that, you know, that is as viable and attractive and mutually beneficial. I mean, if you look at these populist movements all around the world, they all have one thing in common, which is they blame others for their own domestic problems. And so, you know, Trump wants Europeans and Asians and Middle Eastern countries to pay more and to do more, right? In Europe, it's, you know, others should do more. And and, and and it's not something that entails a vision that's that that works for for everyone. I mean, it, there are winners and losers, and and if that plays out, I think ultimately everyone will be worse off. And so, to remember that, I think, and and to remember why, you know, to definitely adjust and reform, and to look for ways of strengthening and improving what we have, but not to um to lose faith until there is another vision there that is as workable and beneficial as you know as what we've had to date thank you very much for sharing your thoughts Tom. great and thanks for reading the book so carefully it's been a real pleasure thanks this episode of global futures was presented by joel sandu and torsten benner and produced by sonia sugarbova from the global public policy institute our guest was thomas wright for a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.